0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy. Today in the studio, we've got the perfect ingredients to start up our own private hospital. We've got a surgeon, a psychiatrist, and most important of all, a lawyer. But to our surgeon first, Dr. Amanda Richards is an ear, nose and throat surgeon with a particular interest in the voice. No? Not the TV show, but the noise you make that comes out of your mouth. Amanda will be telling us about World Voice Day that's coming up this Thursday and what we can do to make sure we keep our voices healthy and vibrant. Now, I still can't get used to calling him Junior, but that's his name. You see, Junior is a brand new psychiatrist who's just itching to tell us everything he's learnt in his quest to become the brightest young shrink on the block. Today on the show, Junior will be talking with us about methamphetamines and ice. And we all know they've been in the news a lot lately. Lex judicata had his eyes on becoming a high court judge, but he just wasn't tall enough. So he shortened his focus and instead headed up the legal department at one of Melbourne's biggest and busiest hospitals. See, he just got that joke. He's managed to become more than just a lawyer doctors don't run from he's a lawyer that doctors like to hang around with that's because he's pretty sensible and practical so what does he do with his job he retires but fortunately for us he'll be staying on the show for the next couple of years today he'll be telling us the top 10 tips of how not to get sued as a doctor Hmm, interesting listening now Good morning, Lex Giudicato.
2: well good morning it's uh, nice to be here to rec- uh to be uh, to continue the camp- my campaign for the high Court appointment i'm very grateful as you know you tops up your super if you I... can do ten years there. Do you get to wear a wig in the high court no no they, they sort of look more like American judges very very cool and casual you know, the black robe like the Supremes. no they, they, they wear the wigs oh, and the yeah it. and the button you know the buckle shoes and the uh, hose <laughs> the ankle. The really? mid league hose. You should go to the legal opening, the opening of the legal year in February. You'll see them all parading around outside church. For a lot of them, it's the only day they go to church in the whole year.
1: Hang on, outside church? I thought church and state were supposed to be separate. No, they have a big church service
2: at the opening of the legal year to bless their year's work. And, and at synagogues and at the uh, mosque. It's, it's multicultural. At cha- Chapel of some sort. A Chapel of some sort. Yeah, where the atheists go, probably down the pub. <laughs>
1: And good morning, uh, Dr. Richards. Lovely to have you on the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me today, Mel Practice. Now, um,
1: we're going to get to your segment in a minute. Sitting right next to you is Junior. I still can't get used to calling you Junior. How are you, Junior? Good morning, Mel. Now, you have come in. uh, You were on call yesterday, weren't you?
3: I was, and it was a frantic, frantic day at the uh, Metropolitan Hospital. He called me at about half past ten last
1: night. He was still working through his admissions for the day. Mm. He is such a busy Mm. young man. Now, lots happening in the news over the last couple of weeks. Um, Lex, we were talking during the week about a particularly interesting case uh, about... Oh, it's so complex. Why don't you describe it?
2: Well, I've got an hour's worth of material here. Yeah, that's OK, <laughs> it's isn't it? it about 35 seconds. I mean, it's, we can hear about The Voice some other day, can't we? And as for Junior, he's so oh, yeah. knackered. He might as well
1: just curl <laughs> up and go to sleep in the corner. You should call this the Lex Judicata show. But yeah. Why don't you tell us about this very complicated case? Well, um, you, you would have read in the press this week, that, mm-hmm. or
2: maybe last week, that a... Um, pregnant woman developed leukaemia mm-hmm. uh, at about 32 weeks mm-hmm. and um, it's, it was called acute promyelocytic my- my- acute, acute um leukaemia. See so we let you stumble over that because yeah, well, <laughs> I know you think you're a doctor. They're but. Greek roots, I'm a Latin root specialist. Um, and um the, the position is that you can treat this and the baby has a reasonable chance of survival, yep. but it requires the administration of blood. Yep. And the 28-year-old mother decided, uh, because she was a Jehovah's Witness, to refuse blood. Mm-hmm. And so not only did the um, foetus die, mm. so did the mother. Of, mm. uh, and so it's a very sad case. Mm. Um, there are not many cases in Australia uh, that I'm aware of where um, Jehovah's Witnesses... Actually, die f- by refusing blood. Mm-hmm. Often, there are ways around it with um, with other products. They can accept, mm-hmm. um, but it's a very sad situation. Mm-hmm. But of course, it gives rise to this, the question: um, Does the doctor have any duty to the un- well to the fetus, or what some are now calling the unborn child? Right. And is there any difference between a fetus and an unborn child? Uh, well, you might say that's just semantics, but in the debate. Uh, that lies beneath the surface and the Women's Electoral Lobby call this the Trojan Horse, Uh, if you start describing a foetus as not being part of the mother but as an unborn child, you... uh, uh, assisting those who would want to see some change to the abortion mm-hmm. laws. Sure. So it's a very hot political topic. But, the, but well, the point I wanted to make is that there is an increasing amount of medical intervention for foetuses, for example, where they have a blood incompatibility with the mother uh, or where there is some other issue, uh, where the foetus can be operated on in utero uh, and perhaps save... It so it can be born alive, whereas in previous years... The fetus would have died. Um, uh, now, uh, medical interventions can, in fact, help those fetuses. And there's a whole group, there's a whole area in uh, o- O&G Obis and Gaini, which deals with
1: uh, fetus health. so now. I just have to go backwards a step. So, in terms of the law, does the fetus uh, is that is the fetus treated as a separate entity to the mother? Uh, no, it's not. And. and um, Uh, I'll give you an
2: example, Um, if if there's a road accident and it's culpable driving, the other driver is, say, drunk, and the woman driver or passenger is, say, 32 weeks pregnant and the baby, uh, sorry, the fetus uh, dies in utero and is still born. Right. The question is, does the can the um, dr- other driver be charged with culpable driving causing death? Right. Well, the answer is no, because the fetus is not a separate human being because it hasn't been born alive. So there's what's called the born-alive test. Um, you can only kill something, that's been born alive but in Victoria and in other states the definition of serious injury causing serious injury includes um, causing harm to an unborn child to a fetus Mm -hmm. basically so that is harm to the woman not so the fetus has no rights but but harming the fetus means you're harming the woman Mm -hmm. and that is regarded in Victoria as causing serious injury Mm -hmm. so you could be charged with culpable driving to the extent that you've caused serious injury, and um, the penalty can be uh, depends on the various offences. But one of them is up to 20 years. If you if you cause serious injury with aggravated violence, mm-hmm. the penalty is 20 years. Mm-hmm. Now, um, if it's simply um, recklessly causing serious injury then harming the fetus, even if the woman herself is not harmed in any other way, Mm -hmm. that could lead to a 10-year jail sentence. Now, in New South Wales, Fred Nile is trying to change the law, because you might know Fred Nile is a campaigner, really uh, against uh, uh, the new abortion laws, certainly the, the, the abortion laws that exist in Victoria, although they don't exist in New South Wales. And his so, cap-
1: hang on a second. The abortion laws in well, Victoria in vi- and New South Wales are different? Yes. Yes. It's still a. Well,
2: the um, Abortion Reform Act in Victoria is unique still in terms of um, a woman does not need consent to have an abortion done by a medical practitioner up to 24 weeks. And after, consent, how do you mean consent? Yeah, well, that, you can just go in and have it done. There's right. no requirement, no other legal requirement. No legal There's no test of mental. Uh, duress, or a woman's right is to have an abortion, have mm. a termination at, uh, at at will after twenty four weeks. And in New South Wales, no. no well, no. Uh, there has to be the um, uh, the common law tests of it's got to be in the woman's mental health, you know, in the interest of her mental health, etc. Mm-hmm. So the Victorian laws is ahead after 24 weeks in Victoria, you need two doctors to uh, agree right. that it's to be done, but nevertheless, it can be done. Now, the worry is that um, if you start describing a fetus as an unborn child, even um, it can lead to the, the concept of uh, abortion involving the killing of children. Oh, and understand. so the That's Women's awesome. Electoral yeah. Lobby is very concerned sure. that if you were to suddenly say that there can be a crime of harming an unborn child, as opposed to harming the mother, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in other words, the unborn child is the victim, mm-hmm. then it gives legitimacy right, gotcha. to the concept of an unborn child being a child, when in yeah. fact it's part of the woman, it's a fetus, and that's the way the law regards it at the moment.
1: Do you know what, it's, you know, that one small case can have these massive reverberations, not just particular to that particular case. So you were describing the case of the lady who unfortunately died, who had mm. uh, acute pro promyelocytic leukemia, mm-hmm. and, and that's a specific event, but then it has all these implications all the way mm. through society. So, Well,
2: more than that, because, um, because of the, gr- the large amount of, of fetal medical practice that's going on, mm-hmm. there will be situations where there's a conflict between the interests of the fetus and the interests of the mother. Now, clearly, the interests of the mother at the moment must be, must be paramount, mm-hmm. but t- to what extent, um, if, this, if this doctrine takes off... If you could find women facing um, the problem of their medical practitioners in a conflict situation, and, uh, you know, wh- wh- where do we stand? Well, clearly, the situation, you would have to say, should be that the interests of the mother are paramount and that the foetus is part of the mother and
1: does not have any separate legal rights. You know, when we started this conversation, just we were off air, we said this could take up an hour of that time, It <laughs> certainly could. We've just touched the surface of this. Thanks so much, Lex. We are going to come back and speak with Dr. Amanda Richards about World Voice Day. Welcome, Dr. Amanda Richards. Thank you. Now, just a quick question, Amanda. Um, You know how you call surgeons mister, harking back to the old days of barbers, that's right? Yes, yes. What about what happens to female surgeons? What do we call you? Well,
0: female surgeons um, can be called a variety of different things depending on what they choose. So I think a lot of young surgeons these days like to be called doctor. It's easier for patients. Yeah. But we also have surgeons who uh, are called miss or miss. Really? Yes. How
1: interesting, no isn't word. it? Is it now, do you call that, Lex, an, an anachronism when something harks back to, like, the 1500s? We What's... love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do.
2: QC... <laughs> You know. QC, yes, sir. Yeah, we're, we're at QC in, in Victoria. And we don't even have a Queen in Victoria. I mean, you know what's going on here?
3: Well, of course we've got a
1: Queen.
2: But I, I, I know a head of department who's a Miss.
0: Yes. Who, who's oh, of course, a, yes,
2: who's you know not a young woman and indeed not a single woman, and it is a strange title for. But she, she's adamant that she's Miss.
1: Language is fascinating. Anyway, Amanda, we uh, do digress. Tell us, uh, you're an ENT surgeon. What do ENT surgeons? Do?
0: So we're surgeons that look after patients that have problems um, with the ears, the nose, and the throat, and that includes everything from things like hearing loss right mm-hmm. through to head and neck cancer.
1: Right, yeah, and obviously the uh, the voice box as well, the larynx. Absolutely. Now this is a particular interest of yours. Tell us about the voice and the world Voice Day and all stuff voice.
0: So the voice, it's such an interesting instrument and we like to think of our voice as um, our unique footprint. Um, It's an amazing thing Um, and voice is something that makes um, us connect with the rest of the world and we think that it's a uniquely human connection. And Mm so World Voice Day is all about uh, teaching people around the world that voice matters. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, uh, every year on April 16 since the 1990s, um, ear, nose and throat surgeons, speech pathologists and other voice professionals along with performers and singers have come together on World Voice Day April 16 to celebrate the voice and there are a variety of concerts and um, education events that are happening around the world in Mm -hmm. fact there's more than 300 across five different continents and this year in Melbourne the Australian Voice Association is putting on a free education event for people to try and educate uh, singers and lovers of voice about how to keep their voice healthy. Mm
1: -hmm. And particularly in Australia what's sort of events are we looking at?
0: So around the country we have a variety of different Mm -hmm. uh, events Um, some of them are occurring at a very small level say community groups getting together just to educate each other Um, in Tasmania we have a questionnaire that's going out to young singers. Sydney has organised an amazing uh, conference called Sing It Sydney where we're having performers and uh, in Queensland we've got another educational session that's happening. Mm
1: -hmm. And obviously there will be a web page. How do listeners Find information about World Voice Day? Uh, So,
0: the World Voice Organisation has uh, a webpage, and the best way to find that is just by uh, searching World Voice Day, uh, and it comes up as a slightly difficult website to remember but essentially it's Mm worldvoiceday.org and then um, people within Australia can also look at the Australian Voice Association website which is Mm australianvoiceassociation.com.au and then go to the events tab and we've got a list of all the events around the country. And what sort of people
1: should be interested or would be interested, two different things I guess, in World Voice Day?
0: I think everyone should be interested I mean we all need to use our voice regardless of whether that's in our profession or whether it's just in the home setting.
2: Yeah. How do we protect our voices? I mean, well, going well, to the well, footy well. on Saturday afternoon is not a good way to protect your voice, is it?
0: No, it's not. No. <laughs> it depends <laughs> on
2: which side you support next. <laughs> <laughs> and is it, and, and does, when the voice... Heals itself after going hoarse. Is it really ever the same again?
0: Well, it depends a little bit on what the underlying cause of the problem is, as to how easily it's able to heal. But we've got a number of different tips that we can use to encourage all people, not just singers, but uh, anyone that needs to use their voice a lot to keep it healthy. And one of the most important things is that we need to warm up our voices before we start speaking each day. So mm-hmm. you wouldn't go on a 5K run without doing some stretching, and so too you need to warm your voice-up before you yeah. start using it. How do
1: you, I, yeah, how do you how warm do it, do it up? That? It's usually wrangling the kids, getting them up out of bed, getting <laughs> well, them to, quick, quick to breakfast. Quick yeah. coffee down the throat, that
2: warms yeah, it up. Yeah,
0: so there are lots of different exercises that um, that we're able to use, which is sometimes difficult to translate to radio, but gentle humming and things that we call lip trills, um, making an R ah type of sound. Did um, you do that for us?
3: <laughs> I can't do that. It's like having... Long earlobes. You can either do that or you can't do it. So if you speak a um, romantic Latino language, you've got an upper hand, really, because you're constantly doing...
2: Absolutely. (laughs) In the early mornings, uh, Junior? Is that what you would normally do in the early mornings?
3: Well, yeah, I try to, you know, especially on my bike ride to work. I'm constantly breathing with a... <laughs> he,
1: does, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't do much sleep. So, a thr- is that called a trill? A lip trill,
0: yeah. A lip trill. What Tongue else, trill.
1: What else can you do to warm up?
0: Um, so, gentle humming is also a good way of, uh, of warming up the voice. Could um,
1: you give us an example? So, you just... Mm, That's a scale?
0: Yeah, well, sort of, yeah.
1: Okay. So, a trill and a hum. Anything else we can do to warm up?
0: Um, gentle stretching exercises as well. There are lots of muscles around your neck. And so, making sure that your muscles are warmed up and they're nice and relaxed is a good way to use your voice.
1: What, so, before the footy, you can imagine all these people yes, see Yeah. The
0: <laughs> <one>. <laughs> could
2: be, you know, singing the, uh, the theme song. You could warm up with the.
1: Large, long, good oh, breakfast. No wonder no, no, no. no no. no could... you've got a bad voice. Oh, <laughs> you know don't tell me. La, 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 last Monday. <laughs> So warming up is good for voice and to protect our voice. What else can we do?
0: We really need to be careful about the way that we use our voice and um, particularly for people that are having to use it a lot, like Mm -hmm. teachers or performers or call centre workers, um, it's important to uh, try and not shout not yell too loudly. Um, We want people to be aware of the background noise that they're speaking over. If you're in the pub, you're going to have to shout and yell and that's going to put a lot of extra strain on your voice.
1: How do you know the difference? This sounds dumb, but it's fair How do you know the difference between talking loudly and shouting? Is there like a physiological Mm. difference? Because I can, like sometimes I talk loudly and sometimes I shout and I can feel that there is a difference, but I don't quite know what it is that's happening in my body.
0: Shouting probably feels particularly forceful, you know, when you shout really Loudly, you can feel the voice, the force inside your like exactly, a, yeah. inside okay. your voice box. So yeah.
1: try not to do that. But yeah. I can talk loudly.
0: You can talk loudly over short periods of time, but you just need to be aware that if you're noticing that you're having voice problems, you need to back off.
1: And just out of interest, why is talking why shouting? Why does that harm the, the voice box? I mean, why, what harm can it possibly do?
0: Well, the way that the vocal folds work, or the voice box, um, is called the larynx, and the way that it works is that the vocal folds uh, open and close hundreds of times a second, and in order for us to speak loudly, they need to open hundreds of times a second, and it becomes more forceful.
2: until they get worn out. Absolutely. They're tired. Yeah. They get tired, It's really? just like
0: a callus. Really?
2: Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. And, and, and do, sorry, could I just ask my previous question again? When they get tired, they will recover to their previous uh, quality?
0: It depends on how you care for them afterwards, but if you're able to rest your voice and if you're able then to see a, a voice care professional, uh, sometimes to give you some exercises, then often people can recover themselves. That's right. Hmm.
3: I have to say, I mean, out of every other organ or, or part in our body involved in communication or sensory um, modalities, the voice box or the larynx is really a hardy, resilient, um, you know, little um, worker. You know, com- you know, a lot I of people, so. as they age, they have um, problems with their vision, um, hearing, you know, ability to swallow, even. Um, but um, you know, you, you very rarely come across people who, um, gradually as they age, just become I'm um, more and more um, mute. Um, mute. What <laughs> do you say, I
2: mean? I mean, does that, your voice? deteriorate with age
0: yeah so as you get older um, you lose elasticity within the body and we also find that your natural secretions that lubricate the voice box tend to dry up and then you also get some muscle wasting as well so the, vo- the voice box can thin out a little bit and that can cause problems
2: and what sort of problems um, croaky pe- voice
0: yeah people might find that they have a croaky voice or it's weak or they can't project it as well as what they used to and it might be tired after using not it not as
3: loud absolutely it, yeah. oh, interesting I have one more question, esoteric. Um, I'm hoping that uh, the good miss um, doctor can um, help answer. Um, voice machines. Yes, I, w- through medical school, etc. we know how um, larynxes and voice, box, voice boxes work. But the voice machines that help people to talk when they have had you know, laryngectomies and um, basically operations where their voice boxes have been removed, how do they work?
0: Um, so the, the larynx is a really interesting piece of equipment but basically in order for us to speak we need to be able to use our lungs to force air up Normally we have a voice box that it goes through and then we modify the sound through our mouth and, and the rest of our throat and so the electrolarynx is really just replacing the voice box which vibrates with a different source for vibration so we're still using our lungs and we're still using our mouth to then make the sound
2: but it's very myotonal, isn't it? I mean, it you look is not it yes. I mean, Ian McFarlane, the minister, one of the current ministers, has clearly got something like that going for him. And it's he's very easy to understand, but it's quite different. It's not... You know, it's, it's a substantial drop in... In range of what you can do with your voice isn't it?
0: Yes it is yeah but But we also have other ways of uh, rehabilitating patients who have had their voice box taken out um, that can often give a more natural voice.
1: And we might get you back to talk about that but how else do I get to keep my voice healthy apart from hang on I've got warming up I've got don't shout yeah can do those too?
0: Yeah, so the other things that you can do are making sure that you're well hydrated so avoiding too much coffee, too much tea, antihistamines, some medications can also dry ah, out the voice so drinking some water, making sure that you're well hydrated is going to keep your voice healthy. You know
1: in the old days or in old movies, you used to see actresses um, have a puffer to, to mist air and to inhale sort of moist air to, to, to lubricate their larynx. Is that kind of something that people still do?
0: We tend not to do that so much anymore. Steam inhalations can be helpful yeah. though but drinking drinking enough water before your performances and particularly the day before performances can be really important as mm-hmm. well and avoiding irritants so things like cigarette smoke um that sort of thing can really cause irritation with or the dust
1: throat. dusty environments
0: absolutely yeah
1: so so far you've told me everything that happens in a pub in the opposite so yeah. i don't yeah. warm up i shout i'm expect drink Go I'm ex- smoke. <laughs> well, no, not anymore but yeah okay so all the, all good advice. What else can we do? For that um,
0: it's really important to take care of yourself when you're unwell. So if you have a cold um, or you feel that you've had an injury, then you need to back off a little bit with your voice use. And sometimes a day or two of voice rest will often just set things back in the right direction. But if you find that you've got persistent voice problems, mm-hmm. it's really important yep. to get along to see your GP who can then send you in the right direction.
1: Have you fellas, I'm aiming this at the gentleman on either side of you, man, ever lost your voice through laryngitis? Yeah. Yeah, what yeah. Was that? What, yeah was completely, that
2: ex- but not for more than about a day. That, uh, I, two or three times it's happened, but it's so disempowering Isn't it when you can't communicate. Isn't it just? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's scary, in fact, and um, for a lot of people, they can't do their job yeah. if they can't speak. I mean, you might be able to be, a, a, say, a, tr- a delivery driver with, a, with a, just a form to sign driving a truck, but if you've got any job where you have to communicate with other people
1: to do it, it's impossible. Well, even that, you've got to ask the person to sign the form, which is going to be yeah. difficult if you can't speak, mm.
3: What about you, Jenny? Try being a psychiatrist, Lex. Without a voice, you're, <laughs> no, you're all, pretty you useless. Have to, you have to listen a lot more. <laughs> I do remember when when I was a trainee. Um, at one point, I had to get uh, two wisdom teeth out on the, at the same time, and uh, it wasn't really a big problem. Um, but the dentist said, "Look, you know, just wh- whip them out while you can," and uh, you know, so I couldn't really talk. It wasn't because of um, losing my voice, um, but uh, you know, I had to basically take time off work because mm. me being at work was pretty useless mm. my the the director of the service at the time took me to the movies instead <laughs>
1: <laughs> what which was this in australia
3: uh, after hours after work hours he felt sorry for me and arranged to meet up at the cinemas and we watched the movie, that there a movie w- w- oh, there's no the point there it, was uh, no yeah. point catching up
2: for
1: coffee was there yeah. <laughs> No. Wow. Well, no, that's what Amanda's just said. It's the last <laughs> thing you should be doing. Exactly. Resting. What other tips do you have for us, Amanda?
0: Uh, I think the other things we would want to say is just consider that you might need to use amplification. Uh, so, for people oh, like teachers, yeah, yeah. try and get around having to shout by using an amplifier. Um, and we would also say try and avoid throat clearing and uh, coughing oh. too much.
1: Really? Mm. So, no, throat <coughs> clearing. so, don't do that.
0: Well, w- when possible, try and swallow. Do what we call a hard swallow instead. So so try and swallow, and often that will stop that irritation that you can get in the throat.
1: A hard swallow,
0: mm. as
1: compared to a soft swallow. Yeah.
0: So, <laughs> so
2: heavy coughing in the morning and waking up the entire household is a bad idea. That isn't?
0: is absolutely a bad idea. <laughs> yes. Ah, well. See, I don't like using
1: amplification in electric theatres because it just sounds—it doesn't sound natural. I mean, I will now because you've told me to. But um, <laughs> do you get people like me who are incorrigible and just refuse to to use amplification and they? Like
0: Sometimes, it? yes. Mm. Yep.
1: Do you? Do yeah. Do you treat um opera singers and pop singers
2: and, you know, rock band singers? Amanda, hang on.
1: He's gonna to get to stuck in the opera track.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. What stresses being a performer has on your voice? I mean it, it, are you really laying down the foundations for a very poor voice in later life. I won't talk about the hearing that's another issue but the voice particularly?
0: Well I, I think we would consider all people who are singers as vocal athletes and so there, there is a lot of strain uh, <laughs> on, on the voice box um, but these people are particularly well trained to care for their voices and uh, along with their voice teachers as soon as they notice that there's a problem then they'll usually come and get help early on so that a lot of the problems that we find are usually very easily reversible.
1: Amanda, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, Would you mind hanging around, just being part of the discussion for the next 40, oh no, 31 minutes? Fantastic. Good on you. And that's World Voice Day coming up this Thursday the 16th. People can find it by Googling or searching World Voice Day. Lots of events on. Uh, I've had a look at the webpage. It looks really, really exciting. I think you should uh, check it out.
3: Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
1: Amanda told us that whilst she was in New York doing your fellowship, is that right? Your fellowship yes. in surgery. She actually listened to the podcasts of radiotherapy. So how about that for a fan? Isn't that great? Mm. She's the one, Lex. What well, actually like that? Like you that. know, you've been there a week. You run out of things to do. <laughs> yeah, it's a boring place, New York. Put on. Hey, um, Junior, I I can't open the paper or listen to the news or watch the news without hearing about ice, either politically, socially, medically, lots of talk about um, amphetamines and ice in particular. I-, I wanted to have a discussion with you about just, you know, what it is, what the politics are, what the medicine is, all that sort of stuff. So
3: tell me about ice. Absolutely. Um, very, very, very topical yeah. um, issue at the moment, obviously <laughs> affecting our country and um, our city. Um, what can I tell you about um, ice or methamphetamines? Is uh, the uh, official chemical term? Look, it actually—it's—it's uh, it's a compound that actually um, traces back a long way. Um, really? Was, I yeah, thought it was new, like the last ten years or so. It was first synthesised in 1887 by a um, Romanian chemist um, in Germany. So it's been around for nearly 150 years. Really? Yeah. For what purpose, Junior? so at the time it was just synthesized but very quickly um we're talking you know um before the 1900s it became regularly synthesized by japan and um it started being used in warfare so this amphetamines or ice in particular so this was um so amphetamines um followed by um methamphetamines you mean to to treat pilots that's right Mm. so um you know there's There are documented accounts of um, methamphetamines being used, um, given to pilots, German pilots in the Luftwaffe, um, uh, in pill form to keep them awake, keep them steely strong and um, committed to the mission. And, you know, this has been used um, in the Second World War Mm
1: -hmm.
3: and um, in the 1950s, it was um, used in um, the United States as a dieting pill for um, weight loss. So it's actually been around for quite some time. Um, so this is amphetamines? This is amphetamines and methamphetamines. So what's the difference between methamphetamine?
1: If you tell me an alkali group or a carbon chain or... ch
3: 3 CH. So it's a methyl group attached to the amphetamine compound and effectively how it works in um, the brain circuitry is that it attaches to uh, different, slightly different receptors to amphetamines and the idea is that it's a much more intense and uh, much more... Um, uh, profound um, a stimulant so, than amphetamine. So how do they work? I mean, why do they? What do they do to
1: somebody's brain?
3: To break it down in sort of simple terms, um, that affects multiple neurotransmitters in the brain. That specifically um, dopamine, um, serotonin, and what we call the monoamines. So the small little amine. Um, Neurochemicals floating around the brain, but the ones that are associated with mood and energy levels. So, which ones are they? Dopamine and dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, and these sorts of
1: compounds. I'll just ask Lex, who's not a doctor, although he thinks he is. If I mean, you in the popular press, have you heard of dopamine before? Is that sort of common? Yes, I
2: thought dopamine was uh, 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 are among the chemicals that make you feel good. Exactly right, uh, and that you know, you you uh, you know, comedy and laughter and so on make you feel good, and and this I assume is to give an artificial feeling of that, is it? Without actually,
3: you know, you can you can induce it through the drug. Yes, absolutely, it certainly does that. Dopamine does that. Serotonin also does that. Um, the reason why um, people can't uh, sort of uh, explain the role of neuro any one neurotransmitter with great conviction is because ultimately we don't fully understand. What we do understand in 2015 is that each neurotransmitter has got multiple roles that it plays. So dopamine is um, uh, implicated in happiness, but there's also lots of established evidence now that dopamine... Is also involved in satiety, in habit forming, even in movements. Is there so thrill seeking as well, like gambling and that sort of stuff? Yeah. Uh-huh. So habit formation and addictive behaviours. Yeah. And, so and, the, and this drug is addictive. Well, it's highly addictive because, and this is a particular, I, I, I suppose, being a psychiatrist, I'm interested in sort of human behaviour. Yeah. And yes, pharmacologically. Uh, Methamphetamines and amphetamines are very addictive, but I'm perhaps interested in the sort of social um, addictive properties of
1: it. So and let's let's just break that down, because you're talking pharmacologically addictive. How is that different to socially the social addiction, as you were saying? I mean, what what does addiction mean? Because it's a term that's often you know bandied about. What's the concept of addiction? Independence, I should say.
3: In the simplistic term, a pharmacological um, addiction happens when um, the body's processes and mechanisms and physiology gets used to having that Ah, external substance around and without it it can't function very well Uh okay so that's purely breaking it down in the so lows and highs you have lows if you don't get
2: it and you you crave a high to recover from the low whereas if you're not addicted you don't have highs and lows at all you just rely on your natural brain f- dopamine to give you whatever you need in accordance in co- with your normal life but well, once was, you're addicted you're up and down
3: i was referring more to the biological dependence initially by my first statement and it's really just a mechatronic um, need for the body to continue having that effect Right. Right. What that is, what is more like a mechanistic. Mechanistic, right. I have it with lifesavers at about three in the afternoon. Yeah? <laughs> it's probably, that's probably more habitual. That's more oh, social. Okay. Yeah. It's dental, I can tell you too. <laughs> but what I find curious about um, amphetamines and methamphetamines is that um, as a substance, um, people tend to use it to function on it and it um it it helps them to get things done a lot of people i've met who use methamphetamines started using it because they just needed to get the housework done Mm -hmm. it was an energizer Mm -hmm. okay it was like you know inserting that um Mm -hmm. energizer battery Mm -hmm. in the bunny to get them Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. right um in recent decades in, in australia a lot of our um substance uh social problems um involved more um sedating or or what we call downer Mm -hmm. substances, Mm -hmm. so for example heroin, um, cannabis and people don't tend to use these substances to get things done, Mm -hmm. right? They use it to relax, to Mm -hmm. feel good, to feel better but um, the interesting thing about methamphetamines or amphetamines in general is that People might start using it initially to feel good about themselves and to get things done, to be more active and to be more productive. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a very quick, vicious cycle of antisocial obviously, behaviour. Obviously, it's clear I can't that say antisocial behaviour is, is linked to it. Think, I
1: think what what Junior's saying is that you start off uh, innocuously or to improve your function, but then as you become dependent on it, your function declines. Is that, or you, you, become, you need more and more of it to maintain the same level of functioning rather that's right. than antisocial yeah. per se. Well,
2: say. that's a spin-off, isn't yeah. it, the antisocial, because the, the pumped-up feeling of wanting to get things
3: done can translate into um, aggressive behaviour towards that's others. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, once judgment is impaired, all right, the, the spin-off or one of the... Um, one of the benefits of um, methamphetamine intoxication is confidence. But confidence is also um, a side effect. It's a double-edged sword.
1: So you can be falsely confident, you mean, That's like right. driving really, really fast thinking you're you know, superman and that obviously is impaired in sight.
3: That's right. Yeah, okay. And it's interesting you raise that, Mel, um, because um, there's been statistics uh, recently published about uh, um, road. Um, traffic accidents Mm -hmm. um, in persons using um, methamphetamines and you know just a couple of interesting stats perhaps Um, between uh, over the last um, over the three years between 2010 to 2013 the number of injured drivers with methamphetamines present in their bodies have risen from about 112 a year to 245 So 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 it's doubled more than doubled wow. in three years. Wow! Um, the number of uh, drivers who have had fatal crashes with methamphetamines in their bodies um, have gone from eight a year in 2001 to 22 in 2011. Mm. And probably even more in 2015. Probably more, probably more. And now that uh, the... Um, drug booze buses are quite ubiquitous. Um, I was quite interested to read that uh, 1 in 15 um, drivers um, tested came back positive for illicit substances in their bodies. What? So 1 in 15, 1 in
1: 15. just average average, random drug test drivers comes back with positive, uh, positive for uh, amphetamines? Mm-hmm.
3: It's certainly much more prolific now. I mean, there's an article wow. published in... Uh, a piece published in the Sydney Morning Herald today um, yeah. Saying that uh, um, ice-related arrests and detention have um, uh, increased by 25% in the last two years. It,
2: the other thing I want it's to say, everywhere. the other thing wow. socially it concerns me, which is not really what you're talking about, Junior, is that it's cheap and it's easily manufactured, and it can be done in sort of remote farmhouses scattered around the place that are, uh, can escape detection. I mean that makes it even
3: more dangerous, isn't it, in terms of its availability m- compared to say heroin as an illicit drug. The interesting thing, the interesting comparison between um, amphetamines and, say, a substance like heroin or cannabis is that, is that um, cannabis and heroin needs to be cultivated. Mm. It needs to be grown. You need land and space and sunshine and water and hydroponics. Um, and you probably need to import it in many cases too, as yeah. opposed to this, which can be home-made. That's that right. right. Whereas with amphetamines, you need the pharmacological precursors and it can be synthesised.
1: Right. So, in terms of the, the social and behavioural effects of ice, you've talked about road traffic accidents or in some cases road traffic certainties, you know, if you, uh, in some cases. Um, increase in drug arrests, increase in arrests. I mean, what are some of the other social sequelae from... really is, you know, uh, an upswing in, in ice use across Australia. I mean, I can think of a few things, but it's your topic.
3: What is highly detrimental, I think, about um, methamphetamine use and intoxication is that um, when people use methamphetamines... Um, they go out and they do things. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Whereas with other substances, um, particularly the uh, suppressants, right, such as um, de- depressants, I should say. Yeah. So alcohol, cannabis, heroin, um, benzodiazepines, um, or even prescription um, opioids, um, it tends to make people feel a bit more relaxed. Stay home. All right. Put a movie on. Right. In the case of cannabis, it might make them have an appetite. With methamphetamines you use it and you do things you get out and you do things that okay, was so
1: that was exactly what was on my mind that's much more public when you're using it compared to the depressants where you stay home this
3: is really public yeah that's right and some of the direct impact we've seen um, in hospitals and in the community is um, assault rates aggression um, poor judgment and um, assault rates on staff that's right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so I saw Tony Abbott in the paper the other day um, talking about ice. What, what's happening there?
3: He's trying to improve his image. <laughs> so in the past week, um, the Prime Minister has uh, proposed a national task force to um, address um, ice use, and there's been several mechanisms that's been um, announced about um, related to how they could uh, achieve this. Yeah. So they're looking at um, reducing the supply reducing the demand for uh, methamphetamines and harm reduction. There's even been some um, discussion about whether there should be uh, safe injecting rooms for um, methamphetamine users, um, such as when they had um, safe injecting rooms for heroin. So I'm not which we quite never had. sure. we never had in Victoria. We never had in Victoria. Mm-hmm. I'm not too sure if the latter will work. Right, because uh, some of the drawbacks of um, ice use is that you become intensely paranoid, agitated, and aggressive. Yeah. and being I mean, in a room of twenty other very paranoid, <laughs> agitated, aggressive people might not mm-hmm. work. So, is there money behind
1: this, or is it kind of uh, just for discussion at the moment? Is there a task force? What's happening? I mean,
3: where's the so There's a Victorian on? task force, isn't there too? They're, Daniel Andrews has set up a. Task force. Ken Lay, the former police yep. commissioner, is um, heading the task force. I haven't come across specific data about um, how much money they're throwing into it. I think they're still trying to nut out what's going to work and what isn't going to work. So these are all good words, but I mean,
1: where where is it heading to? So there is a sorry, there is a national task force.
3: Well, the Abbott ones
2: only come in this week. Um, uh, Andrew's announced it I think it might have even been an election promise but yeah. he announced um, an ice task force I think two or three weeks ago yeah. I mean it's, it needs federal and state intervention, you need the federal police involved sure, just as much because sure, sure, they yeah. run across the border and sure. a lot of the Victorian police do uh, You know, particularly around the Murray where a lot of, yeah. Ice, yeah. A lot of methamphetamine manufacturing is going on yeah. so you do need the ability to have a national presence as well hopefully they'll just coordinate it properly and, and, and,
3: and root out the factories. So on that, there have been a few uh, practical um, uh, programs being instigated. Um, one is um, they're suggesting whether um, pharmacies have to have mandatory recording of um, pseudoephedrine um, dispensation. Oh. So effectively making pseudoephedrine, one of the precursors for um, amphetamine-methamphetamine synthesis, um, making this effectively similar to a Schedulate poison. So a cough mixture? That's right. And, and having records of um, who they're selling these precursor or well, potential precursor medications to. So you have to get it on the script That's rather right. than just over the counter. Yes, and it also has to be recorded. Oh, another another suggestion is um, you know, tripling um, roadside testing, again, to sort of help um, road users be safe from um, people intoxicated um, with the substance. Can I just ask a question here? Um, Lex, <laughs> if, if you're found to have...
1: Um, uh, illegal substances in your um, random drug test by the side of the road. What are the implications? If you're driving okay, do you... well, you can be driving okay and be over
2: five too. But That's, the fact true. Is if you, That's true. It's regarded as um, not acceptable under the Road Safety Act, and you can face loss of license and massive demerit points, just as you can for uh, drinking.
1: So the worst that can happen, the worst that can happen, will be loss of license. But do you go to court and be charged with? Possessing no. a drug or using a well, drug? Well,
2: if you had it on you... If a, possession is always a minor charge. It's trafficking that's a really se- serious charge. <clears throat> I don't think a lot of police would be bothered charging you with possession unless you had enough. awful lot. If you have so much on you that you must be a trafficker, you'll be done for trafficking, and that's very serious. But what
1: I'll try and get my head around is if, if you've got <coughs> an illegal substance in your bloodstream and you're picked up at a random drug test, then... The worst that can happen to you if you don't have drugs on you is um, demerit points or loss yeah, of license.
2: Yeah, you're not in possession and right. you're not trafficking, right. so that's
1: that's the key. So one in fifteen people are going to have loss of license, demerit points, that mm. sort of thing. And as so they should, yeah. and, and loss yeah. of vehicle maybe yeah. too yeah.
2: Okay. it's repeated, impounding the vehicle.
3: Yep, one of the proposals suggested um, in the. Uh, with the task forces that, um, um, in New South Wales at least, they're considering halving the threshold of possession to 500 grams, yeah. whereas you know currently 500 grams of of possession of possession of the substance. So you're
2: deemed to be a trafficker if it's more than that. So if
3: it's much more serious. Than than 500, 500 grams. grams of methamphetamines. methamphetamines. Right. At the moment, it's 1,000 grams. Right. right? Interestingly, just as a as a um, transpacific comparison, America, North America, and um, the United States of America have always taken a much harder line with um, substances and alcohol, funnily enough, um, as well as gambling than our country. Mm-hmm. Um, in many American states, they've got this um, legal process called. Um, um, Minimum, minimum mandatory sentencing yeah well don't go there for, yep. yes i'm not pro or against i'm just um, as a comparison <laughs> for example in um, new what? york state the the law unchanged from 1973 right you can get 15 years to life for possession of any more than four ounces of a hard drug yep. methamphetamines re- um included yeah, and just yeah, changing empirical to metric um Four ounces is 112 grams. Mm. 15? Well, that's an indictment on the US justice system and their ability
2: to sort out the drug problem. Um, That's why you've got um, children in prison for life Mm. without parole. Mm. I mean, you don't want that. Mm. That's just a totally inappropriate penalty. You want want detection and you want prosecution, but you've got to get it in proportion. I mean, I think you've got to stamp out the supply. I mean, Mockbell had a major supply. He had his warehouse up in Bonny Doon. And, you know, you stamp out those the big big people involved in the business, not the small-time users. And if you dry up supply, you've got to be ahead. And I would have thought um, a lot of people listening in regional Victoria
1: will know where the supply is coming from. Oh, we've opened up a can of worms, haven't we? And we're just winding up Flex Judicata. He's about to start spouting about the American judicial system. Oh, I'm, I I'm, on your, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. Um, thank you so much, Junior. Very nice summary of the kind of just touching on the key issues of uh, amphetamine and methamphetamine. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. There are three doctors in the studio. You've got um, three and a third tips for each of us how not uh, to get sued.
2: Well, in fact, I was, uh, I was asked, I think, by you to come up with ten tips to avoid being sued. In fact, I've got a bonus tip as well. Bonus tip? A bonus tip. <laughs> I've got the ten. I thought, no, let's just follow more. through like, a, like an Andre Agassi... You know, four down the line, dating me a bit, but so I did. Now, look, the first tip is the obvious one. You live or die by your clinical notes. So, if you're worried about, if you're a health professional, I'm not just talking about doctors, I'm talking about um, nurses, um, I'm talking about uh, allied
1: health. Um, uh, Species, if, physio, OT, social yeah, workers. Health professionals. Health
2: professionals. Uh, health in professionals, in yeah. the APRA sense, um, APRA. but indeed others. You live or die by your clinical notes. Good yep. notes, you've got, always got a good defence. Uh, poor notes, you've got a poor defence. No notes, no defence. No defence. No and, in fact, courts believe what's in the notes if they're made contemporaneously. So if there's a medical legal case and it's contemporaneously recorded, the courts will accept that in most cases. However, if, um, if, uh, uh, if an allegation's made and they're not recorded... In the medical notes, the burden on proving it happened is very high for the health professional to persuade the judge or the jury that,
1: in fact, even though he or she didn't record it, it really happened. I know you've only got a minute per tip, but does contemporaneous mean within 24 hours? Uh,
2: yes. Of course, if you go off shift and you think, oh, I've just got to get home, you know, I've got, uh, but I'll do it in the morning, that's not so bad, but you can't relieve it much longer than that. You've got to do it when you're next back on shift and preferably before you go home. Second, Second. always get informed Ching. consent. Always get informed consent. We all know about um, Rogers and Whitaker. It's not just uh, consent <laughs> that <laughs> is accepted by doctors. You know, before Rogers and Whittaker, the test was, well, if a regional medical practitioner uh, would have thought that that was good enough for consent, that's fair enough, even though some medical practitioners would have disagreed with that doctor. No, not anymore. It's the same test as for... Uh, all consent issues and that is uh, you've got to take into account what the patient would have wanted to know Mrs Whittaghani had sight in one eye the doctor didn't bother to tell her that the risk of operating on her bad eye to improve it would harm her good eye in fact it sent her blind because it did harm her good eye and he never warned her about that and that was regarded as a failing of, of getting consent he was sued and she was successful in the High Court and that overturned the previous decision that as long as doctors think it's all right, it doesn't matter no, that's no longer the case. You've got to um, take into account what the patient would have wanted and what's fair to the patient. So informed consent is critical. Uh, it means you've got to cover all the, all the downsides uh, that are reasonable. Even in her case, it was a 1 in 14,000 chance that she would have gone blind in the other eye, but because she only had vision in one eye, it was more important to tell her than to tell anyone else, and he should have done it and he didn't. Catching number three. Uh, always engage in open disclosure when things go wrong. Um, if things do go wrong, it's an adverse event, and it doesn't necessarily mean the patient's died... But if they have to be readmitted to theatre or they are in hospital longer than they expected, you should, um, you should uh, say you're sorry, uh, uh, have a meeting with the patient or the family and give a genuine expression of regret. And a lot of doctors think, oh, no, that's, um, that's admitting liability, I'll be sued now for sure. Well, in fact, um, in Victoria, uh, apologies are not admissible in court or in the coroners or before APRA. Really?
1: they so, exempt. So if I say I'm sorry I took off the wrong leg... Mm-hmm. That's not admissible. No,
2: opinion. if the plaintiff goes forward and says, well, the doctor must have been negligent because he said he was sorry, the court says that's inadmissible evidence, you can't give that evidence, the jury should uh, strike that from their brain. And in fact, they wouldn't be allowed to say it in the first place. It's not admissible. <gasps> wow. So, did know that. Mm-hmm. But if you said, um, what? look, what? I'm sorry I took off the wrong leg, it's because I came in a bit hungover, uh, that's uh, <laughs> admitting liability clearly. You uh, stick to facts, you know, I cut off the wrong leg. Not... An opinion. It was because I was hungover. Because, because you could I was be high on ice, or high on ice. You could do the operation properly even if you were hungover. So, surely surely um, our
1: legal department at our busy Melbourne hospital should be telling us this. Oh, they do
2: regularly. <laughs> in fact, they go horse Amanda. They do it so often they lose their voices. before fourth tip. Engage in risk mitigation practices. So, so if the hospitals worked out that before you start surgery, come on Amanda, you can tell us all about this. Timeout. Should you do timeout? Well, the old school don't do it. They all do it in your theatres? What's
0: timeout? 100% of the time.
2: The <laughs> you want to tell us about timeout? You'll take my minute, but that's all right.
0: Yeah, so timeout is about making sure that you have the correct patient, um, the correct site and the correct operation and confirming that with the nursing team, the medical team, uh, including the surgeons and the anaesthetists.
2: Before you start.
0: Absolutely. So and the, the signed
3: consent.
2: Yeah and the patients on the, the patients on the table we're ready to go we're out to put the about to put the knife on the skin and everyone steps back timeout
1: timeout doesn't mean that to my kids
2: <laughs> well I've had experience, <laughs> I've had experience with uh, surgeons who haven't done time out and have made a real mess of things and the patient wakes up and says how come I've got a wound up here doctor when you're meant to be operating down the, below on the other side mm. and the doctors had to uh. get, some, get a script together. oh well look when I got in there I thought this was more important than down there but I'll do <gasps> down there next week when I get back from a holiday in Thailand. Oh and got away with it but you know dangerous Tip five uh oh I've got to oh, six. page to get to five to five uh yes we're up to tip number five. Yeah. How, are we five yeah. so how are we going? Wait, wait a minute. Engage with the patient and the patient's family. Yes. So if you, if you just ignore nice. them, the surgeon never comes near the patient after treatment, uh, relies on the nurses or the OTs, never shows up, never talks to the patient. We had a recent case in the Supreme Court where the, the um, registrar said, I'm going to take out the tracheostomy, and the which is a, a breathing aid for a patient, and the family said, well, we don't agree with this. And off we went to the Supreme Court? And the judge said, "If you had a family conference with the surgeon? Answer um, so now... Go back and have one, legal fees $10,000. So if you're going to um, not consult with families, you'll end up in court. You've got to take them with you, and particularly the people who do the surgery have to take the family into their confidence and tell them what's going on. Try and behave, behave as though you're a patient. Be a patient occasionally. Hang on, is this number six? No, <laughs> being empathetic. All right. See, you can't even empathise with my point here. Um, <laughs> if you empathise with them, it's really good for a lawyer to be a client occasionally, and it's really good for a doctor to be a patient occasionally, so you understand what it's like so- when other side. Nice one. Number six, be careful with discharge planning. Discharging uh, with a bad plan, where someone can be harmed, is really uh, a problem, and you, you have a duty of care to that patient to provide. So if they're homeless, you don't say, off you go, um, you find somewhere to live, you've got to actually find somewhere to safely discharge them and have their instructions. Number seven, stay within your scope of practice, um, particularly with interns and HMOs, you know, training doctors and nurses. If you're worried this is beyond your scope of practice, Stop and and refer it and give it to someone who understands what's going on. Don't uh, just bat on and follow through. Number eight. Don't stray outside hospital policy. So hospitals have policies, if things go wrong and you end up at the coroner's, the coroner's going to say, well, how come the hospital policy was this, doctor
1: or nurse, and you did that? Can I just butt in there for a second? I know I'm getting to you at like, 30 seconds. But the problem is there are so many policies. How do you get to them
2: Well, really time, out, time out's a policy. You know, if time-out's yeah, a policy... Yeah, but that's one policy it, among 15 requirements million. Requirements for a Met call... You might think, well, I'm not going to call a medical emergency for this patient. I can battle through. You know, I've, I've been to Harvard. I've got a, you know, I'm a whiz kid. I can do this. No, the hospital policy says if the blood pressure's this and the GCS score is this, you do a met call. Cool. We don't I'm, care how smart I'm, you are.
1: I'm 100% with you, and these are very important, urgent, critical policies. Yeah. But it's the lesser policies that sort of get buried that we don't know. But anyway, we'll talk about that in another show. All right, right
2: that, number nine, escalate where required. Never be afraid to disturb a consultant in the middle of the night, um, even Hang on. if there's a Hang on. problem you're unsure about. <laughs> you must escalate. There is still a major fear out there that if you ring up a consultant at 3am you'll be barked
1: at. Well... That's the consultant's problem, not your problem. Yeah. And it's much that, better that they know at 3 a.m. than a, than a disaster at 7 a.m. Yeah, a. that's yeah. right. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: So that's that's um, that's number nine. Escalate. Number ten. Encourage teamwork. Um, it's much likely to be l- much less likely to make an error if we're all involved, like flying an aircraft. You've got ground control, you've got co-pilot, you've got uh, navigator. You don't have one person running the show. You don't have one surgeon in the theatre telling everyone what to do and not listening to what everyone else is saying. You've got to encourage teamwork. Teamwork. And that's the way you avoid errors. That's number 10. You want
1: hang, on, the hang on, hang on, hang on.
3: Here comes number 11. The bonus.
2: If all else fails and you have an adverse event, don't put it in writing unless it's to your lawyer. Don't write to your colleague and say, Dear Dr X, I was in theatre today and I unfortunately took off the wrong leg. I must have less to drink the night before I come in to operate. Uh, By the way, this is a private and confidential letter. I've put private and confidential on the bottom and I've put commercial and confidence on the top. That has no effect. Any letter written to another person in the course related to what's happened will be admissible on discovery. So the plaintiff will get that letter. The only exception is where you send it to your lawyer because letters to lawyers... Information given to lawyers and received from lawyers is confidential and can 't be disclosed in court that 's why God created really? lawyers, so everything I say to you is in complete confidence if it 's in the course of uh, giving you legal advice or in anticipation of litigation
1: i 'd just like to say on air everything I speak to you about is in, is for legal advice we 've got to wrap up hey, i got I really say this uh, lex judicata I really say this that was that was brilliant I love that we yeah. should write this up and, and put it out you should give me one for the lawyers we'll I should have 10 I- tips to stop I- lawyers <laughs> being sued <laughs> well, that. Um, you have been listening to Radiotherapy it has been a, a bonza morning thanks so much to Lex Giudicato who has just stopped oh, a whole lot of people being sued thank you so much to Amanda Richards who is in to talk with us about World Voice Day go to the web check out the activities thank you so much to Junior you're fantastic we are going to leave you with the scientists from Einstein coming up right now